0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to begin today, I would like to thank fellow saloners, Zachary G., Palm Springs Pool Service, Haven B., Kevin T. and Kyle K., all of whom made recent donations to the salon via our forums. And as pleased as I am at your donations, I need to point out that last year when I first opened our forums, well, I didn't quite understand what I was doing when I set them up. And as a result, for the first few people who signed up, and uh, these five fellow saloners were among the very first to do so, Well, (laughs) I mistakenly set it up so that after the first year there was an auto renewal feature that kicked in. I eventually figured out how to turn that feature off, but there are a number of people who might wind up making a second $12 donation without realizing it. So if anyone has been automatically charged by PayPal and you don't want to make a second donation, I can uh, completely understand and it will be happy for me to refund your payment. Just send me a note via the comments section of our psychedelicsalon.com website and I'll uh, get your money right back to you. Hopefully uh, I've now figured out how to cancel the other auto payments, but I didn't get it done in time for Zachary, Palm Springs Pool Service, Haven B., Kevin T., or Kyle K. And uh, so my apologies go out to you and uh, please let me know if you'd like a refund and I'll see to it right away. Now, getting on with today's podcast, I hope that you'll be pleased to learn that I'm about to begin another series of Terrence McKenna podcasts. These are from a September 1990 workshop that he titled, History Ends in Green. Now, I'm going to play this series of recordings in full, just as they came to me. And while you may think that I should have shortened today's talk a bit by cutting out his initial rap about how he came to be doing what he's doing... Well, it does have a few little tidbits that I hadn't heard before, such as the fact that his earliest memory was from the age of eight months, (laughs) if you can believe that. And uh, so I realized that each time he gave that rap, particularly in the early 90s, as this is from, that each time he told it, uh, it was in a slightly different way, adding and taking away bits and pieces. So, my thought is that, collectively, these talks uh, actually give a pretty complete autobiography of Terrence's early years. And, uh, by the way, you can also find this series of talks in a single three-and-a-half-hour recording on YouTube, uh, in the event that you don't want to wait for me to podcast all six tapes here in the Salon. As often happens with these talks by Terrence McKenna, even though they were given quite a long time ago, there are still many parts that ring true yet today. For example, uh, early on in this talk, he says, and I quote, "...human culture has become, charitably, a random walk, uncharitably a kind of cancerous exponential cascade of unstoppable effects." (laughs) And uh, with the U.S. presidential election being held tomorrow, I don't know how to better describe what is about to happen other than a cancerous exponential cascade of unstoppable effects. So uh, now let's listen to some of the other things that were on the mind of Terence McKenna on this September evening in 1990, which was just a month after Iraq announced its annexation of Kuwait and Bush the Elder called up the reserves, uh, which was the start of the quagmire in Iraq that we still find ourselves in. You see, these unsettled times today are nothing new.
1: I've been traveling a lot and speaking a lot to different kinds of people. And most recently in Europe, where it was a tremendous kind of bridge-building thing to get everything rhetorically lined up and squared around to where I could even introduce the subject of psychedelics. So, I see that I've returned to the uh, home congregation here. and uh, Because, you know, this seems to be the overwhelming focus of this group, which is interesting. It's even sometimes sort of confining to me, because I would wander maybe in other directions, but every prophet is the captive of his uh, earliest ideological expression. You know, I mean, Lenin couldn't do much about Leninism once it had passed a certain point. So, um, in hearing what people's interests were and trying to think about it in new ways, you know, the uniting thing in the 20th century, I think one of the things that sets the 20th century completely apart, really, from previous times, if not ontologically, then by degree, is the uh, the focus on the moving image and the role that this has had in shaping 20th century culture. And it comes really in three forms. It comes in the natural and available form of the dream, which always to some degree has shaped human culture. Uh, But for Freud and Jung in the early 20th century and their followers, the dream took on a whole new significance that it had never uh, had before. It was seen as a cryptic messenger from from a hidden world. And as these things seemed to work out, concomitantly, uh, a technology of the moving image was developing, which was film. And film and the dream then become almost the two defining poles of the evolution of the aesthetic of the 20th century over the first uh, half of it, we'll say. And then... Um, in 1953 because that's when Gordon and Valentina Wasson discovered the mushroom, or earlier if you want to date it to Hoffman's discoveries in Switzerland or the German work in the 20s or later if you want to date it to the discovery in 56 of DMT by, by Zara but at any point, at any rate at some point, the third triad is introduced, which is the hallucinogenic or psychedelic experience. And all, um, all three of these areas of concern have adumbrations in the primitive. The stress on dreaming, uh, even the magic lantern and uh, prestidigitation feats of renaissance magic have a relationship to early film. And, of course, the psychedelic experience is absolutely archaic. Nevertheless, the coming together of these three concerns in this particular fashion in the 20th century set the stage, I think, for an important part of what I will call during this weekend uh, the archaic revival. And the archaic revival is nothing less than a strategy for cultural survival on a global scale. And it's a strategy that is taking place in the animal body of of mankind. It's not an intellectual strategy or a rational strategy. This is what happens whenever a society is slammed to the wall. It unconsciously reaches back through its history or its mythology for a steadying metaphor. Now, the last time this happened in the West and worked was at the time of the collapse of the medieval Christian eschatology, at the time of the rise of urbanization and banking and secular society. Uh, The model of the Christian universe was no longer serviceable and very suddenly philosophers, politicians, social planners reached into the past for classic models. And this was in the 15th and 16th century and they created classicism, the revivification of Roman law, Greek architecture, Greek polity, all of this happened a 1,000 to 1,500 years after these things had been completely abandoned. But then they became the basis for modern secular civilization and our laws are are Greco-Roman and our architecture and our aesthetic and so forth and so on. Well, the way this is happening in the 20th century is, number one, at a much more deep and profound level because it's a global reflex. The entirety of modern civilization has shot its wad in some sense. You know, from the, from the perspective of 500 years, a society that cannot put bread on its grocery shelves, such as the Soviet Union, and a society such as our own that is three trillion dollars in debt, the difference is negligible. I mean, both of these societies are functionally bankrupt. So we're living through and have been living through throughout the 20th century uh, an experience of the dissolution of boundary and form. Everything has been in a state of flux throughout the 20th century. I mean, it opens with the concept of the Edwardian gentleman and lady firmly in place class structure class privilege race privilege sex privilege the entire structure of uh, the assumptions of the post medieval world are in place and functioning now 90 years later none of this is in place and to my mind the uh, the major um, Factor working to achieve this end has not been the two world wars or the exploration of the unconscious by Dada and surrealism or the breakdown of uh, classical design mores or any of this stuff. It's been the psychedelic experience. The psychedelic experience is a genuine um, paradigm-shattering phenomenon We claim that we want this. This is what lies behind the love of flying saucers and, uh, you know, the Loch Ness Monster and all of this is we want a paradigm-shattering object, piece of evidence, body of testimony, something like that. But what we don't realize is we have it. We have it. But as somebody over here on this side of the room said, you know, it's a matter of courage. And this places it in a special, uh, in a special mode. It's not something where we can just validate it and then, uh, you know, found an institute and appoint experts and expect them to issue a report. It's something actually at the center of our being. And uh, my motivation for talking to audiences like this is simply that I, I cannot conceive of mature human beings going from the cradle to the grave without ever finding out about this. I mean, it's not like not finding out about sex or something. You know, it's just too weird. It's a part of our birthright. It's not a cultural artifact. It's not like being able to ride a bicycle or something like that, where you can imagine that pygmies or Amazonian Indians go from birth to the grave and they never ride a bicycle and they never miss it. But this is a little more existentially front and center than that. I mean, this is, as far as I can tell, the um, dimension in which we most fully experience ourselves as ourselves. Well, you know, culture. We have to be very careful about the um, the corrosive effects of culture. Some of you may know about these. That um, was reported in Time Magazine a month or two ago about these forms of salamanders. That never, if the conditions of alkalinity in the lakes are at a certain level, they never mature into the adult form. They actually can reproduce in a juvenile form. So there can be generations of these salamanders that don't even suspect the existence of an, of an adult form that lies beyond the sexually mature, functional adult form. And this is how I sort of think of what the effect of human culture has been on us. Starting about 15 or 20,000 years ago, for reasons that we'll discuss tomorrow, uh, ego began to emerge as a factor in human societies. For the moment, let's just say it had to do with the concern for tracing male lines of paternity. In other words, once men had it enough together to understand the role that sexuality was playing in childbearing, then there became this concern to trace male lines of descent. And suddenly, sexuality had to be very carefully controlled And the concept, my children, my women, my food, my territory, came into being. Before that, there was a kind of orgiastic polymorphic sexuality that did not promote this kind of boundary formation at the edge of the body's effectiveness. You know, in other words, the ego was not a concept as rooted as it is in us. And I think that the, the shift from this boundaryless, group-oriented consciousness, which was psychedelic, to the egocentric, materialistic consciousness uh, uh, that typifies Western society, clear back to Sumer, that this is the neurotic wrong-turning And that when we look back into the causes of it, we can see and argue fairly persuasively that it has to do with an abandonment of of this relationship of ecstasy induced by plants. That there was almost a kind of symbiotic relationship between early human beings and plants, specifically psychedelic plants, and that this relationship was not is not something airy fairy or unclear or operationally undefined for its participants. You get yourself lined up with and arranged correctly in relation to this thing by taking psychoactive plants. And that this is how human societies were regulated over, let's say, a million years. Uh, And there was nothing uh, magical or untoward about it. It was simply that these evolving primates had a uh, population regulatory mechanism that integrated them into the larger body of nature. And this is what has been lost in the historical process so that uh, human culture has become, uh, you know, charitably, a random walk, uncharitably, a kind of cancerous exponential cascade of unstoppable effects. Now, the, the thing is that we are in a position to understand this now, if not actually do something about it. H.G. Wells said uh, history is a race between education and catastrophe. Well, never more so than today because the world is set on a course of catastrophe. The emotional constipation and rigidity of the past thousand years that has set us up as territorial apes with thermonuclear arsenals, all of that is just set to, uh, you know, go critical. Nevertheless, you know, we are minded creatures in the presence of uh, an evolving and rapidly shifting landscape of problems. And uh, I think that uh, it's a very hopeful sign to look around and notice that the only barrier to the solution of our problems are intellectual barriers, barriers in our own mind. We have the money, the technology, the mass communications, the scientific expertise, the remote sensing telemetry. What we don't have is the the will to self-direct all of this technical apparatus toward a rational solution of our problems. But that means that the solution to our problems lies almost entirely in the human domain. And the human domain is the area where we observe the um, highest rate of unpredictable perturbation. So I don't see the situation as uh, terminal or desperate at all. The mushrooms take on on the chaos at the end of history, is this is what it's like when a species prepares to depart for the stars. It is chaotic, but it is not disordered. It is more like a birth than anything else. I mean, there is rending of tissue, there is a sense of crisis, of uh, unstoppable forward motion, But it turns out, all according to plan, all to a good end, the trick is to somehow attain this vision of the ordered correctness of what is happening when it seems so chaotic, and then to uh, template it, to strengthen it, each for ourselves, and then to replicate it and communicate it as a meme, because um, there is no percentage in paralysis here at the brink. The only possibility is uh, of some kind of forward escape. You know, a forward escape is when you attain the goal by simply rushing through the gauntlet and I think that this history that is a race between education and catastrophe is going to turn out to be a forward escape. There will be a moment of complete abandonment to the irrational. And we will look tomorrow at the time wave we will, and look at Saddam Hussein and his role in all of this. But he is not the final act. Uh, this is somewhere late in Act One. all this malarkey that we're having to put up with. But which in this case means downstream in time uh, we will uh, sprout all our worth and woof our wings. But we have a lot of shit to fly through uh, before we get there. I guess I should say just a little bit about my how I got into this, and uh, I think curiosity is probably the ultimate value in my cosmology. It's it's what's gotten me anywhere I've ever been. It's the only impulse that I trust completely, and um, it's alive in most people. As children, but it gets somehow squelched or misdirected or something. And uh, so when I look back through my own life, I see this psychedelic impulse before there was ever a word or a name for what it was. Uh, And I've tried to think back. As far back as I can, and I have very early memories, like like to the eighth month, but they don't seem to relate to this. But I remember in it must have been I was born in '46. It must have been in late '48. Uh, I found a magazine of my father's, which I now must have been the October 1948 issue of Weird Tales. <laughs> and I And it had these illustrations in it, and one of the illustrations was of a hooded figure uh, gazing into a cradle and this I got this somehow as a as an image of uh, of the strange, the other the outre and I think this is the other thing that for me was the hook into the psychedelic was. A kind of deep Irish love of uh, the weird from the very get go. Uh, so curiosity and a love of uh, the weird, the edgy, the bizarre, and uh, this led me into, and I guess maybe a certain a certain degree of obsessive character. I mean, I'm spending time on this because I'm trying to understand the psychedelic personality generally. But I did have a tendency to really focus in on whatever I was into. And I think the first thing was uh, rocks. And this was, uh, you know, it was for me an introduction into the size of time because it wasn't just any rocks that interested me. It quickly became clear that it was fossils. And I lived in western Colorado, and I could go out into these dry arroyos and bring back datable objects, uh, 170 million years old, you know, and stack them up and look at them. So then I got this dizzying sense of the depth of time And, you know, there are those little museum pamphlets where it shows a billion years, and then the last million years is up here, and then it goes down here and spreads out, and then the last 10,000 years. I got that. I assimilated this notion of deep, deep time. And then, uh, you know, it was almost like an intellectual ontogeny recapitulating phylogeny, because the rocks, the inanimate mineral world, soon couldn't confine this restless imagination. So then it became about insects, butterflies specifically, moths especially, as an excuse to be alone in the middle of the night around bright lights, uh, you know, with cyanide. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: and, uh, and you know I don't know if any of you have ever been touched by this particular obsession but because we're insectivores because our food getting habits are wired into a brain 50 million years old in the insect gathering habit you know this is a very deep almost orgasmic response that you can touch in the human organism and I pursued it again and again in life uh, to the point where I did it as a professional in the jungles of Indonesia mm-hmm. and the Amazon. And, and uh, you know, it's horrifying to tell in Buddhist company But when you come upon one of these uh, long-winged, iridescent ornithopterids of the sort that Baron Guy de Rothschild uh, sent his collectors out for in the late 19th century, and you come upon one of these things hanging under a leaf, looking for all the world like it weighs at least half a pound, and, you know, wrestle it into your net, it's as close to having a heart attack as... uh, as I ever want to get and then this thing at some point I I did a lot of reading and at some point I discovered that I had defined myself narrowly and that I was turning into a scientist and I was reading people like Henry James and Aldous Huxley and they were sneering At what I was becoming and talking about a mysterious realm of human thought called the humanities, which I had no notion of what this was. I couldn't even figure out what it possibly could be. Well, then I discovered it meant music, painting, architecture, dance, philosophy, design, in short, the human world the human world as opposed to the natural world. So then, you know, I just turned upon that with a vengeance, mm. left off the bugs and, uh, and the minerals and it became about Henry James and Fragonard and uh, mannerism and all of this stuff. But the transition, because I was hitting adolescence at that point, was uh, rocketry and the pineal joy of launching semi, potentially semi-fatal projectiles uh, into space at twice the speed of sound, into uh, you know a whole gravity's rainbow cycle that I was very consciously aware was about the thrill of liftoff, all this tormenting of mice and cutting up of aluminum chaff into stuff to be dumped out at the top of the trajectory was just to satisfy physics teachers and anxious parents and all that. And the real thing was, uh, you know, this amazing moment of launch when this uh, potassium uh, perchlorate and sugar fuels would just uh, propel these things with ear-splitting intensity. And then... At that point, uh, you know, all this curiosity, all this edge work led me, because I fancied myself also developing as a novelist, to read all of Aldous Huxley. Well, as you know, it moves from a spectrum of these polite novels of English society, like uh, after, well... Um, Chrome Yellow and Antic Hay, and through works like After Many a Summer Dies the Swan, to then the sexual uh, dystopia of Brave New World, and then finally to The Doors of Perception. And when I read The Doors of, of Perception, I knew then that this was something huge, Because he was claiming, you see, what was happening to me as an intellectual, and I think it happens to most people, is exploration of reality was leading to the conclusion that it was um, a no-exit situation. It was some kind of rational labyrinth from which there was no exit. No exit meaning no magic, no possibility of a miracle that, you know, there weren't uh, 25,000 year old cities under the sands of Arabia. There weren't flying saucers underneath the Greenland ice cap. It it didn't work for me. For me, rationalism was more powerful than than uh, uh, you know, sort of menopausal fantasy as it's currently practiced. And so there was drying up. The miraculous was just turning into uh, ordinary reality and then I discovered psychedelic plants and I it was like um, the descent of an angel into a desert of reason because which that's an interesting sort of metaphor the descent of an angel into the desert of reason as you probably know, uh, when Descartes was 21 years old, he shipped out in a Habsburgian army to kick some ass in Eastern Europe and learn some manly soldiering skills. And he was in Ulm in southern Germany uh, in August of 1620, Ulm later to be the birthplace of Einstein. And Descartes, who was completely wet behind the ears, didn't know anything, had a dream, and in the dream, an angel, this is apropos of the metaphor, an angel appeared to him and said, the mastery of nature is to be achieved through measure and Mm -hmm. number. So what's interesting about that then is that he went on to found modern science which was to be the the very temple of rationalism and reason, but it was based on the revelation of an angelic being who spoke to him from another dimension. Well, this was the kind of impact that the psychedelic experience had for me. It was as though there was a doorway, a literal doorway, out of the completely otherwise flawless set of cultural assumptions that kept me, you know, a Catholic altar boy in a small Colorado town in a a Western democracy in a context of anti-communism, religious fundamentalism, consumer capitalism, so forth and so on. The whole bag of, of, uh, of tricks and illusions were suddenly... Exposed for that, and beyond that, you see, like that traveler sticking their head out through the world system and seeing a whole different set of uh, rotations and revolutions, you see um, another dimension of some sort. And then, for me, the, the question became, you know, of what sort? What is this? Number one, what is it? Number two, how did they manage to keep the lid on it? <laughs> and number three, what can you do with it? Well, uh, coincidentally, upon all this, or let's call it coincidentally, society was just going bananas around somewhat similar issues, because I was born in 1946, so that means in 1966 I was 20 years old, and somehow fate had conspired to put me in Berkeley, California. So I happened to be at like the ground zero of the cultural explosion. But I had been following all this stuff for years. It just seemed to me a weird parallelism that my internal growth and obsessions were now somehow becoming the obsessions of society generally. Being 20 years old, I just thought it was a kind of vindication. You know, I knew I'd been right since I was 16, so here was the payoff. But then... You know, it didn't exactly work out like that. These concerns moved through society like a wave. And then other, stronger, what the I Ching calls prepotent systems of uh, of, uh, arrangement reasserted themselves and instead of a kind of psychedelic utopia there was a kind of anti-psychedelic dystopia and everything that psychedelics had tended to call into question which were the um, you know the great sins of the 20th century the misuse of propaganda the abuse of imagery uh, the distortion of information I mean, these are all uniquely modern uh, new sins, if you will. And I talked last night a little bit about the connection between dreams, the, uniquely, uh, the unique province of 20th century psychological theory, film, and the psychedelics. All of these things, and, and I see it also active in art, that as soon as you move beyond impressionism... The whole history of art in the twentieth century is about the dissolution, deconstruction, and re- attempt to reconstruct the image. So that you know, uh, movements as different as analytical cubism and abstract expressionism all are seen to be struggling with the dissolution and reemergence of uh, of the image. Well, what it means is what all this constellation of cultural effects is saying is that uh, the previously assumed to be uh, oh I don't know how to say it existentially prepotent order of society, of linear society, is actually an illusion and that we can move beyond it. We can dissolve it. Not only we can we cannot not do this. Uh, So then the goal becomes, and this is where McLuhan is important, to try and raise into consciousness the process that we are undergoing before it is a fait accompli, before we are in the act of looking back then at a historical uh, event. Because... I now, I'm convinced that the, the um, impulse that I feel in myself and that I see in other people toward the psychedelic experience is, has to do with its potential historical impact. Even though, God knows, we're all aware this is how religion has always been practiced. You know, yet somehow this million-year-old sociological phenomenon, orgiastic, group-minded uh, shamanism in a context of nomadic pastoralism, this phenomenon was only interrupted ten or 15,000 years ago and is apparently the, uh, the state of dynamic equilibrium where we function at our best. Where we feel at our most human, what has happened to us is a kind of um, false bottom in our social dynamic. It's this. It's a series of self-reinforcing situations of disease. It begins with what I talked about last night about concern for male paternity, but once men wanted to trace the descent line of the male genes, previously uh, self-expressive, orgiastic, group-minded sexuality became compartmentalized into concerns of territoriality, ownership, so forth and so on. But then that wasn't the end of it. There then, uh, uh, the rise of hierarchical kingship The amazing, you see, the problem with uh, um, human beings is that we ride very close to a kind of um, bifurcation point in terms of whether our loyalty is transferred to the group or to the individual. And this can be sent either way. I mean, if there were to be landslides at both ends of Highway 1 and a food shortage, you know, we would coalesce marvelously into a survival machine where we would all place group values higher than our own needs. And nobly so, this would happen. But in situations of abundance and non-scarcity, then it's like a slime mold without the formality of coherency we just then dissolve into this sort of every-man-for-himself egocentric uh, style. And then, you know, another bad break along the way that may or may not have been fated, may have just been a bad break, is the evolution of the phonetic alphabet, which creates a tremendous distancing between cognition and the objects of linguistic intentionality. And this gives permission, then, for all kinds of forms of brutalization. It actually gives permission for ideology. Ideology, to my mind, is the denial of the obvious and the substitution for something else, where you say, you know, no, that's not how people are. We have a Marxist model, or we have a Freudian model, or we have... You know, John Stuart Mill's model, who knows, but somebody's model. Uh, so, ideology someone said language was uh, invented in order that people could lie. And in large measure, this is true that we proceed by deception. I'll defend this at some point in this weekend because another word for it is modeling. You know, we model. But we also fall in love with these models. And uh, it's the falling in love with the model that then turns it into an agenda where it was, it was not a free-form projection of a flow of facts toward the conclusion, but then it becomes instead an agenda, a synthetic creode, high walls down which you expect to see a process poured and confined. So in spite of the fact that this phenomena has been around for a long time, why then does it appear so important? Well, it's because this small group, group group-minded, sexually amorphous psychology, the psychology, not the model itself, is what we have to recover I think in order to uh, survive, and uh, you know, I'm I'm not so interested in talking about the odds of making it. It's just this is the only thing that will work. And I said last night, you know, the good news is that the domain in which we must operate is all within our own minds. You know, if we can change our minds, we can take hold. Of this process and halt it, Uh, I believe that the, the presence of these psychedelics in the plant metabolism, in the biosphere, allowed a kind of informational symbiosis between human beings with highly evolved information processing capacity and the biosphere generally And that we have no word for this that we're comfortable with. The closest word we have for it is somehow tied up with the concept of religion, religio. But for us, religion is some kind of abstract dialogue carried on with a philosophical principle. That's not what it is. Religion, originally, was the dimension of the self that directly interfaced nature or the over-self. And this happened through the use of psychedelics. So the reason The weekend is called History Ends in Green and what this whole Gaian uh, awareness thing is to my mind is it's not an airy-fairy attempt to recast... Uh, a new image for religious ontology. It's the actual discovery of the minded presence of the planet, which has always been here, which is real. It's an existential fact like chlorophyll or, uh, you know, the moons of Saturn. The planet has a biological mind of some sort, once you enter, once you articulate this notion, it doesn't seem that unlikely. After all, the planet is clearly a boundary defining topology. It's had two billion years to, uh, uh, you know, uh, make itself metastable undergo all kinds of autopoiesis. We see the evidence of this around us in the form of the uh, climaxed biome of the planet. We see that biology and uh, water chemistry has been very active. But what we don't see is that as active as the chemistry of water or or, uh, electron transfer have also been the invisible alchemies of, you know, call it spirit, call it mind, call it the morphogenetic field, whatever it is, and that that is the frontier of our awareness. Every society in history has had the erroneous belief that it just required six more months and 5% more data, and then they would have a full picture of reality. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, our society at its present state of sophistication, ha- we have the only science we have that can be given any serious creditability at all is physics. The, the, prim- the most primitive of all sciences, the science of momentum and moving bodies in three-dimensional space. When you move on to biology, You know, essentially what we have are a a series of interlocking fables and a few bright spots of light in certain areas. When you move on to psychology, what you have are shouting charlatans, you know, each claiming domain over their own special area. I mean, it's like a medieval fair. So, uh, uh, the, the, the belief that our uh, intellectual maps are somehow adequate is just whistling past the graveyard. And the way we have achieved this illusion of good maps is by tossing out all the disturbing and unintegratable phenomena. Uh, For instance, dreams were trivialized and ignored for centuries. Uh... Madness was something that you can find a way, like criminality, it was not to be looked at. Sexuality, I don't have to remind you that as recently as 120 years ago, people were putting bloomers on piano legs to preserve youth from impure thoughts. I mean, you, you talk about a rejectionist style toward reality. I mean, we have just begun to open our eyes to what is around us. Well, so then front and center, when we begin to explore, let's take a conservative uh, position toward exploring the universe. Let's explore from the center outward. Well, that means uh, from within the confines of the mind-body system, before we generalize about tectonic plates or the motion of the rings of Uranus or something like that, just start from the body out. Well, immediately, you discover total terra incognito. Psychology uh, gives us a, you know, a flickering model of ordinary consciousness under ordinary circumstances, and everything else is up for grabs, And then we discover that, you know, at the center of human concerns is this uh, weird itch about invisible worlds and higher-order entities and sources of hidden knowledge. And we discover, well, people have been at that for a hundred thousand years. And the centerpiece technique, which is to trigger these non-ordinary states of consciousness, With all our sophistication, we have no better grip on what this is than people in the late Neolithic. They knew more than we did because they'd logged more time on in the real modality. I mean, we have models. We say, you know, the drug molecule is translocating to the synapse and displacing ordinary neurotransmitters and raising, therefore, the endogenous level of electron spin resonance. This is not any kind of explanation about what's going on. This is just the chant, the incantation, (laughs) you know? But the, the people who are logging time in there, they come back with maps of reality that fit very uneasily with our cheerful Cartesian democracy and atomistic uh, causal entropic models. And they say, no, no, the universe is an infinite honeycomb each honeycomb ruled over by different spiritual forces, each commanded through different languages, magical techniques, gestural repertoire. Everything is language. Everything holds information for man. Everything is somehow constellated on the presence of observing mind. Well, in the West, we thought we got rid of these kind of cosmogonic myths with uh, uh, the Ptolemaic, universe, you know, even before Copernicus. But now it turns out that the centrality of mind gets reintroduced not only by the evidence of the psychedelic experience, but for instance, uh, uh, the school of, of uh, scientific uh, philosophy of science around LL White and people like that have pointed out that uh, if you use as your index complexity then you suddenly discover that human beings have moved back to the very center of the universe that the most complex physical material in the universe in terms of density of connectedness is the human cerebral cortex that if novelty and density of connectedness is what is being conserved then somehow We are central. Well, so then, you know, other issues are raised. If we are central, then the modern model of history, which is, I don't know if it's ever been explicitly stated for you, but the modern model of history is that it is trendlessly fluctuating. This is the largest structure in which we find ourselves embedded call it the last 10,000 years, and the best guess of the people who spend the most time looking at it is that it trendlessly fluctuates. That means it's like a drunk on a random walk. You see that processes are channeled toward conclusions uh, that in the evolutionary... Well, leave that aside for a minute. In the, in the realm of physical chemistry you see that the progressive cooling of the universe allowed more and more complex chemistry. First electrons could settle down into stable orbits around atomic nuclei, then molecular bonds could form. At still lower temperatures, polymerization could form, and therefore templating-type molecules like DNA. Uh, The universe seems to be an engine for the conservation of complexity until we reach the social sciences where they want to tell us that history is just dropped into this process willy-nilly, is not fractally modeled on anything that precedes it, does not express an internal coherence, and is a completely trendless process. Yet notice that this completely trendless process is atomically composed of the most complex matter material organization in the universe, the human cerebral cortex. Well, I mention this because part of what I'm interested in with this weekend is trying to get a handle on, you know, what is history? What does it mean? It began only 1,500 generations ago which, if we were fruit flies, would be three weeks ago. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's not something really basic to human beings, but it's a process that got started about 1,500 generations ago, and it's a clearly accumulative runaway process. It's going on outside the realm of ordinary genetics. Ordinary genetic change is very conservative and slow, This is a cancerous-type process, but in the cultural domain, it's an epigenetic process, meaning it's not scripted in the genes, but like writing and TV and painting, it goes on outside of the genes. Well, where does it go on? Well, it goes on in the domain of language. And to my mind, language is the critical area to focus on in terms of where the psychedelics are operating and how if if our interest is to trap them doing their elfin work then the place to look is in the domain of language why well first of all look at what language is it's a weird kind of ancillary add-on process to the human organism no other monkeys do it in quite the same way. And I I don't argue that there is not linguistic and grammatical activity in monkeys, dolphins, termites, what have you, but it's very different from what goes on in human beings. Obviously, uh, for instance, you probably know that the, uh, the soft palate of the human being drops lower in the fetal form than in any other primate. By by forty uh, percent or something. What this, the embryological interpretation of this is that the human animal is hardwired for language, and if uh, if you notice what it is, it's small mouth noises, rapidly modulated small mouth noises, and it, it's a conventionalized, it's a highly conventionalized style of behavior which allows transduction of thought. It's a form of telepathy, a striving toward a crude telepathy. Because if you analyze what's happening in the linguistic act, it's that we've all gotten together and we agree that there are these small mouth noises and we agree that a given set of small mouth noises means a certain thing. And we are, we've spent so much time together and so conventionalized our responses to each other that your dictionary of small mouth noises is theoretically supposed to match my dictionary of small mouth noises. So the words going through the air impinge upon your ear. You make a rapid search of your dictionary and you come up with what you assume is a one-to-one match. And we rarely get together to check out just exactly how good a match it was. Occasionally, someone will ask a question, and we will see that they understood that the match, and so the match was good. Because I see a lot of transcripts of my talks, I know that typists hear the most amazing things. And without ever questioning what they hear, they type these these things that when I read them, you know, they're complete malapropisms. Uh, but but this is this is what was heard. And as the level of discourse rises or the density of the technical language increases, uh, it becomes much, much shakier. I mean, I just had the experience of, of lecturing in Czechoslovakia in Prague to the Film Academy, and you know you can go a long ways on sincerity but uh, there's a long way still to go uh, just nodding and, and smiling doesn't doesn't do it when especially when the concepts are fine tuned and it's where they're fine tuned that they're always interesting it's in the nuances of it well uh I think probably that this activity was originally stimulated by the use of psychedelics. That, uh, in fact, most of what is human about us has to do with our, uh, the presence of psychedelic and mutagenic compounds in our diet when we made the transition from being fruititarian, vegetarian, <coughs> arboreal tree dwellers to becoming, um, you know, nomadic uh, pastoralists, if you think about it, you can see how this would work quite neatly. The reason animals specialize their diets is to hold down the amount of exposure to mutagenic chemicals. So most animals have highly specialized diets. That's uh, because then they can develop pathways to sequester mutagens or to, or to just avoid exposure to them initially. But if you put pressure on an animal, uh, on its original food source, where it's actually facing a situation of possible extinction or dietary transformation, it will begin experimenting expanding its repertoire of foods, well, this brings exposure to mutagens in a very steep curve, and this means, uh, consequently, more uh, expression of mutagenic genes become available for natural selection. And so this is the situation in which you might then see a sudden punctuated movement forward in the... uh, adaptive, uh, evolution of adaptive traits of the organism. Well, how this worked in the early human situation was um, drying up of the African continent, forced proto-human arboreal types onto the grassland where they began foraging for uh, uh, and insects had been part of their diet in the canopy situation they began foraging it's also thought they began perhaps predating on carrion kills killed by larger carnivores like lions in any case they began forming a relationship that had them following along behind these evolving ungulate herds of mammals on the African veldt and in that situation they encountered the coprophytic mushrooms, the mushrooms which grow in cow dung preferentially, and many of these contain psilocybin.
0: You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And in my next podcast, we'll pick up right where we just left off. And if I get too depressed with the news this week, well, I, <laughs> I may just put that out before next Monday. We'll have to uh, wait and see what strikes my fancy in the next few days. And by the way, if you're close to San Diego's North County, you can stop by our second Sunday salon at uh, noon and find out firsthand what I think about tomorrow's election. I've posted the location on our forums and I'll link to it in today's program notes, uh, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. And getting back to today's program, uh, I did search for that Weird Tales magazine cover that Terrence mentioned, but I couldn't find one for October 1948. However, uh, the one for March of 1948 did fit the description that he gave. Interestingly, uh, one of the authors whose names were on the cover of that issue was Ray Bradbury, who many years later became a friend of our own Matt Palomary. Now, it's not much of a connection, I guess, but I did find it interesting, uh, given the fact that one of the last, if not the very last novel that Terence ever read was Matt's book, Land Without Evil. But get this, Terence thought that it was an October issue, of which there apparently wasn't one that year, that so influenced his young mind. But in the March issue, the one with the hooded figure on the cover, the title of the story by Ray Bradbury was The October Game. Don't our minds play such interesting games with us sometimes? I'll put a copy of that magazine cover in today's program notes uh, in the event you want to take a look at it. Well, tomorrow, at long last, is the 2016 U.S. presidential election. And while I've done my best to keep politics out of these podcasts, I feel that I owe it to you to give a little update on my own thinking about this election. You may remember that last spring I said that this year I was going to vote for the same person for president that I voted for in 2012. Namely, uh, Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate. Well, I changed my mind about voting for Jill after I learned that she has huge investments in big oil but comparatively little invested in green companies even though she's the candidate of the Green Party. So, uh, I guess it's the same with all politicians. Uh, They want us to do what they say without paying very close attention to what they really do. So, I'm not going to vote for her. In fact... I've decided to not vote at all, ever again. You see, I grew up in a poor family, and I was taught that this is my country, right or wrong, and that if I followed the rules for the so-called American Dream, well, then everything would work out just fine for me. And so that is just what I did. I was a Boy Scout, a Boy Scout leader, an altar boy, a military officer, a lawyer, a businessman, and I raised three children who are now self-sufficient. I did everything that the people in charge said I should do in order to achieve the great American dream. But what has this country done for me in return? In election after election, the political establishment of this nation has given me a choice between two equally bad people. In every election, I've had to hold my nose and vote for the lesser evil, just like everybody else does. But this year, the stench is so great that even holding my nose won't keep me from puking when I look at the top two names on the ballot. In a true democracy, there is no way that the two most despicable people in politics are the only real choices for president. Now, Trump has only one thing going for him. He's not Clinton. But uh, that Clinton woman has two things going for her. One, she's not Trump. And two, she doesn't have a penis. That's it. There is no other reason to vote for either one of these scumbags. But those are the only two choices that our political masters are giving us. And so I'm no longer going to play their wicked game. Our electoral system is dominated by big money and big business. In fact, the USA is no longer a nation, it's simply an exceedingly large company. You know, I quit saying the Pledge of Allegiance after I returned from the war in Vietnam, where I saw firsthand how crooked and deceitful our military-industrial complex actually was. And now we've added the prison industry to that complex of anti-American forces, and the only choices we are given to lead us are the two most hated people in this country. Now You may still think that you're living in a democracy, but if so, you are seriously deluded. So uh, vote if you want, but don't think for an instant that you are participating in a democracy. You are just encouraging the political class to keep screwing us over. What is it going to take for we the people... To realize that we are being had, year after year, election after election. I can't predict the future any better than you can, but my hunch is that we are about to begin a long, low-intensity civil war. There has simply been too much vitriol flying about this past year for people to pretend that it didn't happen. You can say that it's all Trump's fault, but if you've been paying attention, you know that Bernie Sanders said equally hateful things about that Clinton woman. Then old Bernie sold us out and is pretending that Clinton is the best thing since sliced bread. Like all politicians, Bernie is a sellout. So we now have the disenchanted Bernie supporters, of which I am one, and we have the Trump supporters, and we have the criminal element supporting that Clinton woman, and then there's Black Lives Matter, uh, not to mention the Tea Party crazies. If this isn't a recipe for a civil disaster, I don't know what is. It's going to get messy, my friends. Which, uh, (laughs) I have to admit, can be a good thing for us anarchists. Because, uh, ultimately, it is only chaos that will take us out of this horrible status quo that the political elites are pushing down our throats. So, I'm quitting this game of the American dream. It's a fucking nightmare if you ask me. As Billy Connolly so famously said, Don't vote, it only encourages them. (laughs) (sighs) Ah... That really felt good to get off my chest, and uh, even though I am sad to think that this little rant will cause some of our fellow saloners to go away, I do think that it is important for us, uh, from time to time, to be very clear about what we believe. As you know, uh, in last week's podcast, I played this year's Palenque Norte lecture by Grover Norquist, and this is the third year in a row that Grover has spoken to our group at Burning Man. And you also know that he is one of the most conservative men currently active in the political arena here in the States. Definitely not a very psychedelic person. But one of our fellow Saloners posted this comment about that podcast. And I quote, Unusual guest for a psychedelic podcast, to say the least. One was enough for me, and the printed quotes didn't persuade me to listen to this guy again. Sorry, Lorenzo. While it may be unfair of me to post a comment without listening, I'll be skipping this episode. End quote. Well, as far as being a psychedelic podcast goes, it may be hard to see any significance here, but it seems to me that psychedelic people everywhere should be interested in prison reform. After all, the majority of prisoners in the U.S. are there for drug-related offenses. And that was one of the topics that Grover Norquist touched on. But to be honest, I do understand where this Solana is coming from, because, uh, well, I thought very much the same way just a few years ago. But isn't this the reason that we've come to such a sad point in this nation's political dialogue? We've stopped listening to anyone with whom we don't agree. I'm not saying that we have to agree with Norquist or Trump or that Clinton woman, or anyone else for that matter, but I am suggesting that listening to our adversaries may be a better route for us to take than to simply tune them out. Had our fellow Saloner actually listened to the podcast that he was complaining about, he would have learned that Grover Norquist, coming from the far right, and Ralph Nader, coming from the far left, found some common ground, and together they've made some real progress in reforming the out-of-control prison system that sees this country putting more of our fellow citizens in cages than does any other nation on Earth. There are many important differences between the political philosophies of these two men, yet they were able to overcome them and do something that we're all going to benefit from. So, while I'm no longer going to vote, I am going to continue working with those who are trying to change things in ways other than through some phony election process. But, uh, hey, that's just me. And for now, I'm signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.